and welcome once again to the World Snooker Tour podcast, where my guest this week was actually the first professional snooker player I ever interviewed, 26 <laughs> years ago oh now. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, welcome along, Ken Doherty. Thank you. Uh, wow, was it that long ago? It was. I remember it was in your mum's house on yeah. a Sunday afternoon, and I went round about half past one, and mm. she told me you weren't up yet. So <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, yeah. yeah. It must have been a good night the night before then. Well, it was a great afternoon. While we were waiting, she gave me some of her famous apple pie, so uh, it, was, it was a wonderful afternoon. It was so long ago, we actually recorded it on cassette, so how far we've come. <laughs> Those were the days, eh? They were indeed. And Ken, you're both the best player and the worst player to interview. You're mm. the best because you're always so forthcoming and willing mm. to engage. You're the worst because you've been so generous with your time over the years that it's hard to think of anything that you've not been asked yet. You've done so many interviews. But we'll do our best. Yeah. And let's talk about the Dublin snooker scene that you were so much a part of in the 1980s. Mm. Now, I would go so far as to say that at that time, there were probably, certainly per head of population, more really good top-class snooker players in Dublin than anywhere else in the world. Yeah, I mean, we had a, a lot of snooker clubs. Uh, we had a lot of good players. We had a very strong, actually, uh, Dublin leagues as well. And uh, I can't remember how many uh, divisions there were, but there must have been 12 or 13 divisions. So uh, there was quite a lot of players, quite a lot of clubs, and uh, a lot of people playing snooker. And, you know, even in, in Ranla, in a small little village uh, where I'm from, um, we had uh, two snooker clubs, and then eventually we had uh, a pub that opened, and they had like 20-odd tables in there as well. So it was, uh, you know, it was amazing. And they're all closed down now, unfortunately. Mm. But, you know, back in the 80s and the 90s, uh, growing up uh, in Dublin, particularly in the 80s, the leagues were very, very strong. And I think that's where I learned an awful lot, playing in the leagues, playing a lot of the older lads, uh, going into, like, the city and trying to... Uh, you know, play fivers, best of three and stuff like that, money that I didn't really have. Uh, but it was a great learning experience, I think, you know. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because mm. I was going to say that it was inevitable, really, with so many good players that someone was going to emerge mm. as a genuine world-class talent. It mm. turned out to be you. And what really set you apart, I think, was the fact that you had that all-round game and that mm. tactical side to go with everything else. So is that something that you have an instinct for and you just have a nose for how to win matches? Or is it something that, as you say, you learn from playing more experienced guys? A bit of both, maybe? Yeah, I think a bit of both. You know, I think I think definitely uh, playing the older boys <coughs> in the leagues and stuff like that, uh, particularly in those days, I think that's where I learned my trade. And, um, you know, they were very experienced players. You know, there were a lot. Of, some of them were international players that went to play for Ireland in, you know, the home internationals in Prestatyn, and and uh, so I learned an awful lot from them. We used to have a little handicap tournament every Saturday morning in, in Jason's, and uh, from the age of like 12, 13, I was in there every Saturday uh, playing in it. And I absolutely loved it, you know. So uh, yeah, I think just playing a lot of the a lot, a lot of the older guys and learning, watching them as well, and of course watching the snooker on TV. You know, you you uh, you gather a lot of information and you gather a lot of tactics as well of how people play the game. And that all stood to you when you mm. turned pro in mm. 1990. Looking back, it's remarkable to think you'd only been on the circuit two and a half years when you yeah. won a ranking event, yeah. and that was at a time when everyone basically played in every ranking event, so they yeah. were really really hard to win. Mm. And it wasn't out of the blue. You were doing a lot of good things at that time. So were even you a bit surprised by just how quickly you settled in? Yeah, I mean, 
you know, my first year as a pro, when I turned uh, from winning the World Amateur Championships in 89, I turned pro the following September. And, uh, you know, I was sort of, I thought, okay, I've, you know, I've sort of made it and I've got to, you know, I'll whiz through the qualifiers and I'll, I'll start climbing the rankings. But I was a shock to the system, you know. Uh, I'd been beaten a few times early on uh, up in Blackpool, which was, a, you know, the Norbrake Castle. It wasn't the best place to play in. And uh, I lost a few early matches and it sort of knocked my confidence a bit. Um, but I, I won a few matches towards the end. I beat Terry Griffiths, beat Silvino Francisco, got to the last 16, I think, of the European uh, Open at the time. And I think sort of confidence grew from there. But it, was, it wasn't... It wasn't all roses from the beginning. You know, I had to... Uh, it was a bit of a culture shock going from the amateur game to the professional game. And, um, yeah, you had to learn, uh, just like the boys have to learn now, you know. But you learn very, very quickly. You were based in England mm, even yeah. before you'd turned pro. But you did make the decision then to go back to Dublin. And, of course, we'll yeah. come to 97 and the World Championship. Yeah. But I always get the sense from you that going back home to a very close family really helped you, actually, on that road to become um, a world champion. Probably, um but I think, uh, I mean, looking back, I had such a good time in England. I mean, I came over in 88, at £500 in my pocket. Uh, that's all I had. And without the help of Eugene Hughes, who, who helped me greatly get, get me, uh, um, you know, free practice in Ilford. The problem was, our free digs, I was with Anthony O'Connor from Cork, our free digs were over in, in Tornham Green near Chiswick. And we were getting free practice over on the east side of London, which was in uh, Ilford. It was 36 stops on, on the <laughs> district line. 36 stops there, uh, two buses to Ilford, uh, play all day, and then two buses back to Barking, and then 36 stops back to Tornham Green. We were doing that for about three weeks uh, until Eugene says, look, why don't you come over and stay in my house and uh, find some digs. Uh, we'll try and find you some digs. And, and we stayed in his house for about six weeks, and then we found our own digs. And then, uh, But that really helped to settle us down because I think without that help, you know, you need somebody helping, looking after you because... Trying to do it on your own uh, at that time was very, very difficult. Eventually you moved home and you were even more established by then. You'd won the Scottish Masters a couple of times, mm. which was a really high-quality invitation event. You'd been to the UK final. But Ian Doyle, your manager at the time, famously felt you could be doing more. And yeah. he said that thing about how you could sleep for Ireland. <laughs> I suppose that story I told at the start. Yeah, up yeah, a bit. Yeah, yeah. But let's clear this up, Ken. What, what was it? Like, were you just sleeping till midday and not getting um, down the club? No, nah, I mean... You know, some days I could do. You know, uh, you know, if you had late nights back at the uh, in the snoo club, it wasn't like I was going out on the on the on the beer or anything like that. I didn't mm. I didn't really do that. You know, I, a lot of the other guys in the club were doing that. But I mean, if you were staying back late, and sometimes you you go back and you watch some movies, and then you'd stay up late, and then you you might you know stroll into the the snooker club at like midday as opposed to ten o'clock. Uh, I suppose he did have a point, and I sort of. Before the World Championship, I remember saying to Ronnie O'Sullivan, I said, look, let's, uh, let's, let's practice for this World Championship together. Let's like play do a couple of best of 19s each day. So every day uh, for two weeks up to the run up to the World Championship, uh, we, we played each other from 10 o'clock in the morning till like six in the evening. And uh, it really sort of sharpened me up. Ronnie O'Sullivan was absolutely flying in practice. And, uh, you know, he was making a lot of 147s. And I thought... Going to the World Championship, I mean, he this is the man to beat, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Stephen Hendry hadn't been beaten for five years, but I thought if anybody could beat him the way, the way Ronnie was playing, I thought it was going to be Ronnie. Of course, he made that 147 in, against the, first me, round. in the very, very first yeah. round. You know, yeah. it didn't surprise me. I mean, it was probably the greatest 
frame of snooker that we we've ever ever seen you know i don't think that will ever be repeated um in five minutes and i think it was eight seconds or something like that so uh yeah i thought he was gonna win it i eventually beat mark davis 10a uh, and it was a really tough match um Ronnie beat Mick Price, and then of course he went out in the next round to mm. Darren Morgan. Mm. Uh, I played Steve Davis uh, in the next round, who had beaten me, uh, absolutely trounced me in the Masters, the Irish Masters that year. You know, six nil, six one. I beat him with a session to spare, thirteen three. That's never happened, Steve Davis at the World Championship. So it will tell you how well I, I played in that in that um, in that second round. And from then on, uh, you know, from winning that match thirteen three, beating a legend like. Steve Davis, which just gave me so much confidence. You know, I went in and played Higgins the next round, mm. uh, beat him 13-9, I think it was. Robbie Dew, 17-7 with a session to spare it as well, going into the final. So, And the way know, it fell, that earned you a day off. It earned me the night off. Yeah, the yeah, earned me the night off. I watched the exhibition that night mm. uh, between Dennis Darrell and Cliff Torborn. It was great. and uh, I was very relaxed and really excited about the final. But... I must say I was, you know, even though I was so excited, I was a little bit sort of nervous because Hendry, he was almost unbeatable at the World Championship. You know, he'd won five in a row. Uh, he was almost invincible. It was like playing him. It was like playing an away game type of thing, you know, because he was so used to the atmosphere, so used to playing in those conditions on the one table as well, which I only did for the, for the first time, of course, against uh, Elaine Robbie Deal. So there was a lot to sort of take in, but. I thought to myself, this was this was my chance, you know. I wanted to go out, and I thought, like these chances, they don't come around very often. So you got to, you know, seize the day, as they say. And uh, I just went out very, very determined in that final. You actually had a pretty good record against mm. Stephen Henry yeah. around that time. You beat yeah. him a number of times, and yeah. I always felt the reason you had such a good record was you didn't try to take him on at his own game. No. You were happy to let him have his centuries, yeah, and yeah. indeed he had quite a few of them in the mm. final. And you focused more on winning the close tactical frames yeah, yeah. and indeed making sure there were plenty of those yeah, frames. Yeah, exactly. And a lot of players didn't seem to realise that was the way to play him. But yeah. you did, and it worked so well yeah, for you. Yeah, I mean, I'd beaten him before. I'd beaten him in finals, you know. Uh, and I know he'd, he'd beaten me in finals as well. But I, I had a decent record against him. And I, I knew he sort of didn't like playing me because... You know, I was patient, I was dogged. Uh, I knew I wasn't going to outscore him. I knew I couldn't outscore him. Nobody could because he was the best scorer in the game. So why take him on in that game? I knew I couldn't outpot him because he was one of the best long potters that we'd ever seen. Uh, but I knew I could I could break his game down. I could play really good safety, uh, tactical play, take my 40s and 50s. I mean, I never made a century break in that final. Mm -hmm. He made five. He made three in the fourth session. And was five three down, you know. But uh, I had that way of playing him, you know. And I was, I was sort of, I knew if I stuck to my guns, played a good solid game, that that would sort of irritate him in his way, It'd get him out of his comfort zone. Uh, because what's the point in playing fire with fire? It doesn't work. So you've got to, uh, you've got to understand that and understand the game. And uh, I see a lot of players playing today, and they, they, they still don't get it sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That they, they still try to push the boat out all the time instead of just you know taking in the reins wait for a better chance and then try and sometimes you've got to win the scrappy games and sometimes the scrappy games are just as important as the centuries and um, yeah it worked well I mean 5-3 up in the first session I won the second session 6-2 and Hendry was 
what happened with Hendry was that he got a bit frustrated. You know, when he thought he could just outscore me, outpop me, win frames very, very quickly. And when the frames were broken down a little bit, he just kept going for them, you know. And I just sort of kept picking them off, picking off the frames and building up a, a, a sort of a almost unassailable lead. You finished very strongly mm. after he had come back at you a bit. Yeah, yeah. You built I mean, that lead. Oh, so oh, yeah. oh, in the middle of it. I mean, I went to... Uh, so I went 11-5 after the two sessions, came back the next day. I won. I was 4-2 up, which meant I was 15-9. Uh, 15-7 up, yeah. sorry, yeah, 15-7 up. Um, and uh, he came back then. You know, he, he, won, the, he won the last two games of, of that afternoon and then won the first four uh, coming out uh, in the... Um, was it the first Well, the four? first three. First three won. So he yeah, got back so, to 15 Yeah, he won and five in a row. The yeah. next frame then was just colossal because if he oh. gets back to 15-13 at the last interval, well, that was you've the, got to sit there and think about yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. We were going into the interval for 20 minutes, yeah. I think that when he got back from 15-7 to 15-12 and he'd the previous frame, I'd made a 60 break and he cleared up at 60-odd. So it was, oh, it was a cruel blow. And that was the only time, I think, in the final that I got really nervous. I thought, this was it. He's going to make one of those comebacks. You know, and we'd seen him make so many comebacks over the years. You know, Mike Callett, in, of course, in mm. uh, in uh, the Masters was the most famous. But I knew he was capable of it. I knew he was going to give a run at some stage. And uh, I was just sitting in my chair. I said, oh, please, not now. Not to me. Not in the foil of the world chap. That's what I was saying to him. He said, please, don't collapse, whatever you do. And... Um, he almost won. He almost won that frame to go fifteen yeah. thirteen. You know, he he missed the red along the top cushion just behind the black, and left it in the corner of the pocket. And if I, if if it goes in, he, I think he's going to clear it up and win. And it goes fifteen thirteen, and anything could have happened then. He missed it, left it in the jaws. I potted red, black, uh, and red. And I went into the dressing room. I was sixteen twelve, and I, I you could swear that I'd won all four frames. You know, uh, that's what it felt like. Um, I was I was like so relieved. I came out seventeen twelve, and then eventually uh, clearing up on the last few colours uh, was just magical. You know, mm. I mean every every time I just think about it. You know, I still get goosebumps even thinking about it now. You know, you put in the last red and you're clearing up. And you only need up to the blue. You just know you're going to win the World Championship, lift that famous trophy, and it was just uh, amazing, absolutely amazing. What I loved about it, Ken, was that we were so used to seeing Stephen winning it year after year, and he'd barely mm. raise a smile. Mm. Now that's just him. That's his way of yeah, doing yeah, things, yeah, and it was yeah. very, very effective. Yeah, yeah. But you were the opposite. You, yeah, you, yeah. you looked like you were going to explode with joy. <laughs> yeah, Is yeah. that how it felt? Oh, absolutely. It was like all my birdies and you know dreams. I mean... When I first uh, saw Higgins win it in 82, I dreamt to win the World Championship. Then Dennis Taylor win it in 85. And that was my dream, you know. So, you know, so when, when all your dreams come true like that, it's just the most magical feeling, you know. And to lift the trophy, give it a big kiss, I was just, oh, I was just so happy. So I have some friends there. None of the family were there. They were so nervous, like they couldn't come over. They were watching it uh, back home in Renla. And the house was full with journalists and RTE camera crews mm. and everything. But... Uh, it was very, very exciting, you know. It was just uh, the most magical, magical experience, I think, as a as a snooker player. It doesn't get any better than that, you know. And, of course, when you win the World Championship, you get your year as champion. Yeah, so yeah. much came of it for you. Mm. We remember the homecoming parade the in home, Dublin. Uh, yeah. You've talked about so many times. You were yeah. sports personality of the year as well, yeah. which was a really big thing. The other thing as well, of course, is that wherever you go in the world for the next year, 
and it was nearly always Alan Hughes, the yeah, legend yeah, yeah, in those yeah, days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he had announced, please welcome the champion of, of the, the world. world yeah. Now, is that something that you ever get blasé about or used to? Or is it still a big thrill no, every time? I think, I think even now, you know, because you will always be a world champion. You know, you, you're not just a champion just for the year, which is great being introduced. But you're always, even now, you're introduced as the 1997 world champion. And even now, it still gives you a great feeling, you know. It's amazing, you know, and it's amazing. It was amazing. I mean, the homecoming was very special. I never expected that. Our own national broadcaster, RTE, took the live pictures from BBC for the final session only. Uh, so the whole, I mean, even back in Ireland in 97, the whole country hadn't got BBC. So there were certain mm. parts of the country. So they, so everybody in the country was watching it, you know, and it was just an amazing impact. Uh, I didn't expect it. I didn't... Uh, and I didn't really want to know about it. I wanted to keep myself in my own little sort of bubble and cocoon because if I if I knew about the excitement back home, it might have sort of made me even more nervous. But um, I was just it was just so grateful at the homecoming and you know the bus from the airport all the way through, you know the streets of Dublin, uh, stopping at the Lord Mayor's residence and then back up to Renley, you know where all the all the you know the neighbours were out in the streets with balloons and flags and everything. It was just uh, yeah. Just incredible. The crowd know that was the vital one. Ken knows it is. Lovely smile. There's no better feeling in the world. So Ken Doherty thoroughly deserves this Embassy World Championship title. He's a great friend of Stephen Henry, and Stephen Henry will be back, I'm sure, to claim his seventh. But at the moment, Sheffield and the Crucible Theatre belongs to Ken Doherty, who beat Stephen Henry 18-12 to become the 1997 Embassy World Champion. A lot of players, when they win the World Championship the first time, <laughs> it isn't such a good season to follow. Now, yeah, this yeah. was actually reasonably good when mm. you look at it, and mm. particularly in the immediate run-up to Sheffield, you were starting to get some good results together, yeah. and you get to the final again. Mm. And you were really unfortunate in a way, because I always say the way John Higgins played in that final, mm. nobody up to yeah. that point had ever played as well as that before. Yeah, yeah, he, he was quite incredible. I was 13-11, I think, down, going yeah. into that final session, and... Uh, yeah, it was quite difficult. I was just so desperate, you know, uh, to hold on to the cup. I had such a great year with it, you know, and, um, you know, with, with everything else, uh, you know, going to Old Trafford, going out the, the middle of Lansdowne Road with it, uh, you know, going out the middle of Crow Park with it, being invited to Celtic Park to do the draw, like a half-time draw. Um, and actually, it was quite funny because I was invited by Fergus McCann to do the half-time draw at uh, Celtic. Uh, I was introduced to the crowd as world champion. Mm. Wasn't John Higgins and his brother in the crowd <laughs> watching the match? You know, yeah, and yeah, he yeah. said, "What the hell is going? <laughs> He's up here doing a halftime draw." <laughs> they couldn't believe it, you know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but that was the that was the beauty of being world champion. You know, you're invited to all these places. Invited to Downing Street as well. It was quite incredible. Our own government buildings. Um, but yeah, I want and I had such a great time with it. You know, the opening of an envelope, and I was there with the cup. You know, mm. but uh, I had such a great year with it. And I used to sit on top of my mum's uh, TV in the, in the living room in Renla every day. And I'd come down, give it a big, lift it up, give it a big kiss. And she'd always have it shining immaculately, you know. 
and uh, I didn't want to give it up, you know, and I tried desperately to hold on to it, but John Higgins was just, uh, he, he played so well, you know, and uh, he eventually beat me, I think it was 18-12 in the mm. end. It wasn't the last time you got to the final, of course, because 2003 again, mm. you're mm. in the final, and what a amazing run yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. Final Black, yeah, your yeah, first yeah. round match against Sean Murphy. Yeah, yeah. Then you came back from nowhere to beat Graham Dot. Mm. The incredible quarter-final, 10-0 up against John Higgins. Yeah, 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 you yeah. just managed to uh, get across the line. And then the legendary semi-final against mm. Paul Hunter. And even in the final as well, which obviously you lost, you were 11-5 down going yeah, into the yeah, last yeah, day. Yeah, just yeah. the next day, you came out and played as if you still had every bit of belief. Now, we know in the end you were beaten 18-16 by Mark Williams, mm. but it was a superhuman psychological effort to yeah, keep yeah. going to the well like that. Mm. Where does that come from, Ken? Is that something you're born with? Or yeah, do you just uh, build it up? I don't know. I just, uh, I've always been like that. You know, I always, it's always been my motto, never to give up, you know, no matter no matter how, because, and particularly at the World Championship, because you've got the longer frames that, you know, anything can happen, you know? And once you get on a run, uh, you know, you can keep going, and uh, yeah, I mean, ten nine the first match, you know, thirteen twelve against Graham Dot in the second round, beating John Higgins. I was ten nil up. I mean, people can't believe you say I was ten nil up against John Higgins in the World Championship. When was that? You know, but yeah, that was quite incredible. Uh, and then with the, the the match of all matches, I think it was the greatest match I've ever played. Was coming back from and beating Paul Hunter. I mean, as things turned out, you know, I. I you know, even though it was a great match, I still feel sorry for, uh, you know, for sure. Paul Hunter because he's, you know, it probably would have been a great time for him. Had he beaten me, he may have gone on and, and beaten Mark Williams. Who would have, who knows, you know, but uh, it was still one of the, the greatest comebacks that I've ever played. One of the greatest matches I've ever played in. And possibly, I don't know whether it's happened in the World Championship, but I don't think it has. Like, it was, I mean, Dennis Taylor, obviously in the final, but from 15-9 uh, down in the semi-final to beat him 17-16 was... Uh, yeah, I think it was uh, one of the greatest matches uh, and comebacks in the, in the history of the World Championship, which was great. But I think it sort of took a lot out of me going into the final. You know, I was I was absolutely drained going into the final, and it took I was ten two down, I think, to Williams. You came were, back yeah. to came back to twelve all, and then we were sort of fighting. You know, he'd get one frame ahead. I could never get ahead of him. I was always clawing it back to level until we got to sixteen all, and then he beat me eighteen sixteen, and that was a, such a great match as well. You know. Uh, but again, just fell short, you know. And I, when I look back, I mean, that's the one that sort of hurts more. Of all the matches I played, I think that is the, is the one that sort of hurts more. It was losing that final because it would have been great to be sort of a double world champion, you know. But that's the way it goes. Mark played well, you know. Congratulations to him, he, he, and he's been a great champion ever since. And uh, but uh, yeah, that was the one that sort of got away. I think you know. There were a few that got away in the real mm. big finals, world mm. UK yeah, masters. Yeah. The masters, Grand Prix, yeah. I think, in that era was maybe bracketed in that as well. Yeah, yeah, the yeah, four yeah. big BBC yeah, events. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to ten finals. Yeah. The one that you did win was the World Championship. You mm. were beaten in the other nine, and I think you've been a bit unfairly cast as a nearly man. Yeah. As a result of that. You look at the guys you were playing against. Yeah, exactly, I mean, it was yeah. nearly all guys who had won the world championship or went on to win it. Yeah, it's yeah. not like you were going into those finals as favourite. Yeah, uh, no, not at all. I mean, it was a tough era, you know, because not only had you got the class of '92 that you were playing against, but also you had the great of, uh, you know, Stephen Hendry, uh, Jimmy White, uh, Steve Davis was still in his pomp. You know, I think he was still number two in the world when I was torn turning pro. Um, so you still had those, and you had John Parrott as well, you had the likes of Peter Ebden, Alan McManus. So it was a really tough era, you know. Um, 
And yeah, you sort of like for, you know, the best part of 10 or 15 years, you're playing against all those players. Well, particularly the class of 92. And uh, they were the guys that I was, I was coming up against in like semi-finals and finals of tournaments and had to overcome them. Uh, and they were the greats of all time, you know. So it was, it w- it was tough. But uh, yeah, I've won some close finals, lost a lot of finals. I mean, I think I've lost in 13 ranking finals. Uh, but the major ones are the, the ones that got away, the Masters, the two Masters, uh, and the three UK finals, and, of course, the two you know, uh, World Championship finals. So, yeah, they're, they're the ones that are... But listen, if you asked me when I was a kid, when I was starting off, you know, when I, when I saw the game uh, on Pop Black when I was eight, and, you know, when I started, when I got my first cue, and I was playing in Jason's in the handicap tournaments from the age of 10, if you said to me, Look, you're going to be beating all these finals, but you're going to win the world championship. You know, you're going to be a world junior champion. You're going to be a world amateur champion. You're going to be a world professional champion. I would have beat your hand off for it. You know, and I'm I'm very sort of grateful for the career that I've had. I don't really sort of look back in a bad way of of the things I've lost. I just look at the world championship and the year and the career that I've had, and you know, the journey that I've had. I think as well. I think you know, and I'm very very blessed. It's underlined by the fact that when you look at the guys who beat you in those big BBC finals, Ken, mm. they were all players who had already won or mm. would go on to win the World Championship, except for Jimmy White and Matthew Stevens, yeah, yeah, yeah. two players who famously knocked on the door at the Crucible yeah. so many times and never got mm. over the line. Yeah, yeah. And I think that underlines, if you've been given the choice between winning maybe four or five of those, yeah. but not a World Championship, yeah, yeah. or just winning one and it be at the Crucible, yeah. I think we know what you would have picked. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you, you know, you'd pick, of all the other tournaments, the World Championship is the one. And the, the World Championship is the one that you'll always be remembered for, you know. Uh, no matter where you go, uh, people say, oh, you were a world champion. You know, you're in a, very, you're in a very elite club. And even a very elite club at the Crucible as well. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'd swap them all for winning the World Championship for, without a shadow of a doubt. And I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of players out there, even great players, you know, and you see the likes of Trump and Robertson, they've only still won it once, you know, it's, it's, it's not easy to win, you know, it's, it's a really, it's a marathon of the, of the mind, body and soul, uh, the World Championship over 17 days, it's very, very difficult, and of course, you're up against the best players in the world as well. Doherty responded magnificently. 70. To win two frames to level it now. Oh. But it's Mark Williams with a closing 70 who wins by 10 frames to 9. Mark Williams is the powerhouse UK champion. We'll talk about life since those days Mm. in a moment. But first, the quick fire round. Favourite movie? Favourite movie, Goodfellas. Best holiday you've ever been on? Best holiday. Oh, very good. I think... uh, Best holiday. Oh, I went to Thailand for uh, I went to Thailand Phuket uh, for a couple of weeks. It was just magnificent back in the nineties. Yeah, fantastic. Your ideal way to spend a day off? Playing golf. All-time favorite Man United player? Uh, Roy Keane. Has to be. Doesn't <laughs> yeah. And another former Irish sports personality of the yeah, year, of yeah, that's yeah, something yeah, yeah. you have in common. And your favourite song? I know you like your music. My favourite song would be uh, All I Want Is You from U2. 
Let's talk then about the rest of your career. And there were still many good days after all those big finals, and you almost got to world number one at one point. So yeah. even after 03 and that yeah, second yeah, world yeah. final defeat, you still had a lot to offer. Yeah, I, I lost to Marco Fu. I remember Stephen, I think, lost to Nigel Bond, was it, in the yeah. first round of World Championship? Uh, he beat him, was it 10 9? Respotted Black. Yeah, Respotted yeah. Black, yeah. And um, I knew that if I got to the semi-finals, I'd be world number one. I lost to Marco Fu in a very close uh, quarter-final, 13-10. And uh, we were 10 all at one stage. Had I won that, uh, I would have been world number one. So, yeah, the furthest I got to was world number two. But you look back on great days after mm. that and uh, Malta, in fact, in 2006. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And brilliant comeback against John Higgins in the final. And that showed you were, again, very capable of beating the very yeah, best players I, in I big mean, matches. I, was, <laughs> I remember that final so well. Mm. I was 5-2 up and we had an interval. Uh, we came back for the evening session um, and he won all six frames. I couldn't put a ball. I went day five down, uh, first to nine. And uh, all of a sudden, I found something from somewhere. I came back, got to eight all, and beaten nine eight. He broke off. I knocked a long red in, potted the yellow in into the middle, screwed in and out of ball, uh, made a fantastic fifty uh, odd break, like for low colours, uh, and uh, beat him nine eight. And it was the most amazing like comeback again against you know John Higgins, who who had sort of been my nemesis over the previous few years in, in different finals and tournaments. Uh, but to beat him in the final uh, was fantastic another ranking tournament and uh, then of course we, we went out and we had a few drinks that mm. night. the sunshine then, bar the sunshine bar yeah, yeah we went out and uh, I remember coming back to the hotel at 5 o'clock in the morning and my taxi to the airport was waiting outside for me you know because we were on like a I think it was a half seven flight or something like that so I ran upstairs uh, myself and Mick got the got the got the queue and the suitcases down into the car straight out to the airport and John Higgins as we were driving away from the hotel we could see John Higgins walking up the road anyway he I don't know how he managed to get to the airport and by the time he got to the airport it was almost closed and he, we were up in the bar up and uh, even still celebrating and uh, we got on the plane and uh, I was sitting down with Mick and he was the last one up he struggled up the, up the stairs of the plane like going from side to side and uh, by the time he got up the captain says no no I'm not letting this man on this plane so I was already you know I was already sitting down my, my mate Mick was drinking coffee and I, I got up to say oh, listen just let him sit down there he, you know he'd be fine he'll fall asleep he says no no he's not he's not he's too drunk he says we've had some complaints from some of the passengers he says not getting on this flight so and he says you're going with him I says what what did I do he says you're going with him he says you're off so we had to get off and get the next flight so we got thrown off the flight we held the flight up for a couple of hours and uh, we had to get the next flight and when we got the next flight back to Heathrow wasn't there all paparazzi yeah. waiting for us I couldn't believe it you crazy know? stuff yeah yeah so uh and people on the flight thought, well, what's going on here? Is this, do you get this attention all the time? <laughs> <laughs> Myself and John Higgins are like that with our hands over our face. And uh, anyway, I, I was on the back pages for winning the Malta Grand Prix. And then I was on the, or the Malta Cup. And I was on the front pages with John Higgins for being thrown off the plane. For- you know, you're not exaggerating because I actually remember three national newspapers <laughs> yeah. ran with it as their front page. I know, yeah, yeah. It was quite incredible. Yeah. Uh, but the worst thing you could do in that situation, I remember ringing Eamon Dunphy, I said, look, have you seen the papers? He said, what do I do? He says, whatever you do, he says, don't hide. He says, answer every phone call and just give them your side of the story. And that's exactly what I did. I remember Jerry Ryan, who's since passed away, one mm. of the famous DJs in Ireland, ringing me. And I, I, went, on, I went on his show, I went on Joe Dunphy's. And just explain, look, we, we, we weren't 
disorderly we were just a little bit inebriated and having a laugh like you know we weren't uh, boisterous or belligerent in any way uh, we were just having a laugh and just enjoying our time and, and some, some of the passengers took offence by it you know because it was probably so early in the morning my favourite part of the whole story was that I mean it was late when we went to the Sunshine Bar yeah but yeah myself and David Hendon actually left at a reasonable time because we knew we had a flight the next morning yeah, which yeah, is probably yeah. what you should have done okay? <laughs> yeah 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 and yeah. I remember Mick wanted us to stay and as we left he was really angry he was like oh typical press you know, <laughs> journalists famous for being the first to leave the <laughs> yeah, bar yeah, as we yeah, know. yeah 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 you're in the media yourself now of course mm. Ken and I know it's something you had your eye on from a very early stage yeah. and right from the start of your playing days you were always very comfortable around journalists and that whole scene you always seem to enjoy being part of that yeah i don't i, I don't mind it uh, i mean i love uh, i love you know i love doing the commentary i love doing the the tv stuff being an analyst and that uh, i love the the, more, the most thing i think i like about it it's just you know catching up with the guys like you know and just you know i love snooker i love watching the snooker and anyway i'll be watching it i'll be sitting at home watching it on the tv uh, you know if i wasn't here and uh, so, yeah, and we get on really well. We always have a laugh, you know, be it ITV or BBC. We always have a great, great bit of fun. And uh, we enjoy each other's company and we enjoy watching the snooker and see who's, who's you know, playing the best, who's going to win. And, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's not like work at all. You know, we just, uh, we just love the game. We all love the game, always have done. And uh, hopefully we will uh, always. <laughs> You can witness world-class snooker in Edinburgh from the 28th of November to the 4th of December at the Bet Victor Scottish Open. Defending champion Luca Brassell will be aiming to keep a hold of the Stephen Hendry Trophy at the Meadowbank Sports Centre. But a star-studded cast, including Scotland's four-time world champion John Higgins, will have their own title aspirations. Tickets are selling fast, so act now and get yours at wst.tv forward slash tickets. Never been one for bigging yourself up, Ken. I think quiet confidence and belief, yeah, has always been your way. But I know in Ireland, even to this day, you're still a huge star. And to use that old cliche, you transcend mm. your sport. Everyone knows who Ken Doherty is, and you're mm. always in demand for things. So, are you aware of just how much affection there is for you back home? Uh, well, it's yeah. I mean, it is nice. You know, my mother, my mother always said to me, you know, Ken, it's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. You know, and I think that's. That's very important. It's always held with me, you know. I, I always try to to be the best I can, you know, and not be, you know. I don't look at myself as like a world champion when I'm sort of talking to people around like that. I don't, I don't. I just take people the way I find them, you know. And I think that's it's it keeps you sort of very level headed, very you know grounded. Uh, and my family and my mother particularly would have always instilled that in me, you know, and I always want to sort of be like that because if I didn't, I know it would sort of betray all her beliefs, you know, and uh, so I, I never wanted to be like that. But yeah, I mean, I know there's a lot of affection and it's great, you know, and I just love life, you know. I love being, I'm very proud of where I'm from uh, and I always try and portray, you know, the goodness of Ireland as well and, and, and the people there wherever I go and, uh, you know, I just try and be happy, you know. And speaking of family, you have your own son now, Christian, mm, who'll yeah, be yeah. almost 15. Yeah, he'll be 15 at the end of November. Wow, how quick the time goes. Yeah, know? and I know he was a very keen tennis player. Is he still at that? Yeah, he's in school here uh, in England and he's playing tennis. Uh, he's in a, a tennis academy and he's uh, he's enjoying it. He's, you know, he's, he's won a few tournaments this summer already and... Uh, 
yeah, looking forward to his progression now and trying to instill some of the, the life's lessons that I've learned into him and uh, try and keep him, you know, grounded, determined to work hard as well. You know, the work ethic is very important. And also the most important thing for me is the school, you know, to make sure that he gets a good education. My mother would always instill that, just finish your education, finish your leaving and then do what you want to do. So I, I would be the same for him, you know. And you're based in Sheffield now, mm. and there are so many young players in that area and mm. academies and great practice facilities. So you're part of all that now as well, and you get a chance to work with those young yeah, guys. Yeah, actually, you know, like playing there in the Ding Zhongwei Academy, you know, you see so many great young players there, young Chinese lads, uh, and they're so diligent, they're so... Uh, the work ethic is very, very high, uh, and it's great to see, you know. It sort of reminds me of... You know, when I was in Ilford every day from the age of 18, you know, practicing with the likes of Ronnie or Eugene Hughes, Stephen Murphy, uh, and all those lads down there in uh, in East London. Uh, it was They were great times. And I could see the same with these lads, but they really, really work hard. They put a lot of effort in. And it's great to see some of them now coming to the fore and, and doing so well, following in, in Ding's footsteps. And you're now 53 years mm. of age, Ken, which seems ridiculous. You're still looking at 30. <laughs> but you're still going strong and you still mm. get good results here yeah. and there along the way. So Jimmy's still playing in his 60s. Yeah. Can you see that happening for you? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I've got this wild card for the, last, for the next couple of years. Uh, and I, I'm not quite sure, to be honest. You know, I just, I'm going to just go out and enjoy and, and you know, enjoy this new car. But I think my time is coming to an end. You know, I can sort of feel it. And, uh, but I've had a great time. You know, and uh, we'll just see how it goes. You know what I mean? Just enjoy it a couple of years, do what you can, and then uh, and then maybe retire gracefully, I think. And it's a pity that we haven't seen more players coming through in your wake from mm. the Republic of yeah. Ireland. It's still been left to you and Fergal for all this time. Yeah. But Aaron Hill, Aaron maybe Hill, one yeah. or two others. How do you see the future there? Yeah, I mean, I, I like Aaron Hill. I think he's really good. I hope he does well. He's a lovely lad. Uh, it'd be great to see him following on in the footsteps of, of Fergal and myself. Michael Judge is back on the tour. Mm. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I'd like to see some more young players, you know, coming to the fore and trying to get on and trying to turn professional. There's great incentive now for them, you know, if they do, that they'll be, they'll be guaranteed 20000 a year, which will cover a lot of their expenses, take a lot of pressure off. So at least they have that extra incentive there to, uh, to try and make it as a professional, try and get on the tour. And they've got a big legacy to follow, created <laughs> mostly by you, Ken, and in particular in 1997 and mm. so much else. It's been great reflecting on it all with you today. And thanks for everything you've given to the game and to the media over the years. As I say, mm. you've always been so obliging and we look forward to seeing what comes next. Thanks for <laughs> thanks, joining Michael. us. Thanks, Michael. My pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. Next time on the World Snooker Tour podcast, it's Germany's only current professional, Lucas Kleckers. On the ups and downs of his time on tour so far which have included beating Neil Robertson right at the start of his career, but then going into a real slump for the rest of his rookie season. That was really, really tough, actually. That, uh, I, felt, I felt so down like in the middle of the season, and it was so hard to get back to some confidence. And actually, I didn't quite get any confidence back. So, yeah, that's why that was my only match I won that season. I played quite good in a few matches, but I could never win a match. So that was really tough, but... In the second season, then I knew I had a good experience from the first season mm -hmm. and I learned a lot. So then in the second season, I improved and uh, was more relaxed. So that's coming up next time on the World Snooker Tour podcast. And don't forget our bonus content, The 147, rounding up the week's snooker headlines in 147 seconds, out every Tuesday and available to download at wst.tv. Until next time, thanks so much for listening.
and goodbye.